Hello, this is Dr. Tia Barnes, and welcome to the Scholarly Self-Care Podcast, where we will talk all about the SEL, or social-emotional learning, in self-care. This podcast is for educators, parents, and caregivers of children and youth. Each week, we will talk about your well-being to put you in a better space to support the well-being of the children in your life. Ready to get started? Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to share a guest with you who I've had the pleasure of getting to know more over the last year or two now. I can't believe it's probably been almost two years now, Shannon. Um, And it is Dr. Shannon Wanless, and she is going to start off by giving us a little bit more information about herself. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you, Tia. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. I am Shannon Wanless. I'm the director of the Office of Child Development at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty in the School of Ed at Pittsburgh. The Office of Child Development is a university community partnership center, and we have about 50 or so people that work there and work to bring research and community voice together to have an impact on the early childhood landscape in Pittsburgh. So we think a lot about relationships and social-emotional learning, so I'm excited to be here and talk to you more about that. Wonderful. So I was very excited to have you on the show for a number of reasons. One, I know that you are one of our social-emotional learning experts, but in addition to that, I especially love your work both around social justice and equity, but then also around early childhood. And so I'd love for us to get more into a conversation around those topics, you know, as we engage in our conversations today. But I guess one of the first questions I have for you is, could you tell us a little bit more about your story? So how did you get to where you are and, you know, what things happened along the way? Mm, That's a good question. It all makes sense backwards, right? When you look back, but on the way, it never feels that way. My story. So I think back on my own schooling experience as a child and actually even through graduate school and how my social emotional needs were met to different extents at different stages and ages of my development. And so I think that entire trajectory, that whole experience really set clearly in my head how critical social emotional learning was to being able to engage deeply in academic learning and how it felt for me that if you don't have that foundation or that sense of belonging and connection and regulation, that it is very hard to make space. At least it was for me very hard to make space for academic learning. And so when I started in the workforce, I became a preschool teacher. I was a Head Start teacher for a few years at different places around the country. And even though the demographics of the kids changed a lot, depending on where I was um, and the families were all very different, the thing that really was true no matter where I was, was the importance of social emotional learning. And Boy, especially those first six weeks of school, that's before I'd ever seen any of the work in the field on the first six weeks of school. It was just my experience that if you could really build those connections and nurture each other as a community, you could really set up the stage for a great year together. And if you didn't attend to that, it wasn't going to be as well. So that became my research, went back to graduate school and did research on social emotional learning and looking into cultures 
I did my dissertation looking at a few different countries in Asia and seeing how collectivist cultures were a little bit different in the way that kids were developing. But even so, it was still that social emotional learning was so critical for their academic success. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so now I'm at the University of Pittsburgh and applying that in work that we do every day, mostly focused on uh, local context. And because we're in Pittsburgh, although I would say probably anywhere anyone is, social justice is so front and center to the work that we're doing because it seems to intersect with every single aspect of children's and families' lives. So if we're here for their well-being, then we need to be attending to social justice as well. Oh, I love that. So well said. So one of the things that, well, everything you said was very interesting, but as you're talking, I guess one of the connections that I'm making is, or I guess one of the summaries is that social emotional learning more or less seems to be like that foundation before academic learning can begin. And so as you were talking about this idea of social and emotional learning, I'm curious to know how do you define social and emotional well-being? How do you define social and emotional learning? What is your definition? That's a great question. I know there's so many frameworks out there, but I think it really honestly, often boils down to a sense of belonging and connection. And that really includes, as most social-emotional definitions, I think, think about yourself, the way you are understanding and making sense with and managing yourself and with others, um, whether that be another person or an entire community. But often, I think the word belonging and uh, sort of having a sense of harmony with who you are and how you situate in your community seems to, seems to be the gist of it. And when we do, in my office, we do a lot of work on positive racial identity development. Mm -hmm. I just can't stop thinking about social-emotional learning the whole time, even though that isn't the foundation of that work. It is that's how you make sense and understand your own racial identity and how you situate within a racial community. So I think it applies broadly. So in thinking about this idea of belonging and connection, what have you learned along the way that would be helpful to teachers that are out here that are listening parents or any caregivers? Are there any tips that you could provide for them or things to consider? Mm. I don't know if it's a tip, but it's certainly something that's heavy on my mind these days is how we all see our interconnectedness and really have an unconditional sense of the value of all the human beings around us. So if you're a teacher and that's all the children and families that you serve in your classroom. You know, what, what is it that you either intentionally or unintentionally communicate that you are expecting from them to be able to be welcomed and loved and accepted in your classroom? And I think most of us would like to say nothing, right? It's unconditional. But when you think about classroom rules and behavioral expectations and academic assessments, mm -hmm. I think we do communicate a lot of conditions. And so to me, the challenge as the adult in that space, as the facilitator of that space, is to think about how we can have expectations, but yet not make our acceptance of other human beings conditional on them. Yeah, I love that. And especially when you think about, so preschoolers, for example, and just where they are developmentally and 
that need to just want to please others. I can definitely see us having certain expectations of them and putting them forth as more or less something we're dangling for them to be accepted within our classroom, really playing a part in that connection piece and also really affecting them in terms of like their self-esteem and what they determine as their self-worth. Absolutely. Because whether they fit with the school mold or what we plan or what we deem to be valuable, they're valuable human beings. And so just the power of that message to other people, I think, could really change the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The idea of you're enough as you currently are, no matter what actions you may have taken, no matter whether or not you are learning the material in the way that we had hoped you would learn or if you don't meet a particular expectation, just you are enough and valuable. So one of the other things that I wanted to get back to was your work on racial identity in particular. So as you talked about how you were taking on this work as part of your role, one of the things that came to mind for me was this idea of how do we support racial identity, particularly for students who are not necessarily of a similar race that we are? Like, what are some of the ways that you, um, or what are some of the advice you would give to teachers that want to support students' racial identity, and particularly those who may be from different backgrounds? Well, first of all, I have to give a shout out to Dr. Aisha White and Medina Jackson, who have really pioneered that program. And if anyone's interested, they have an amazing website, Positive Racial Identity Development in Early Education, which is PRIDE is short for that. And it's at the mm-hmm. Office of Child Development, and they have lots of resources there. But the, the things that I've seen them really do are first and foremost, reach out to families because it's really largely in the family's purview to be talking to children about racial identity and also be thinking about what does that mean for you in your family? I mean, even as a teacher, I think you can look at a child and make an assumption mm-hmm. about their racial identity, but unless you've had a conversation with the parent, especially for young children, you don't really know what message it is that they believe in or want to convey or what their background is. And so, you know, that puts the teacher more in the listening space and supportive space rather than teaching space, I think. And so it can be more of a family role to be deciding how that makes sense to them. I also think it means decentering whiteness in our curriculum. So when we look at the books, the materials, the stories, even the ways of being in the classroom, it is just so glaring once you start looking at it, how much it prioritizes whiteness. And so even if you had a whole classroom full of white children, that message is still really damaging uh, for them because it gives them this false sense of privilege or that their race is somehow the norm. And so when you can think about what is my curriculum conveying, what are my ways of being in the classroom conveying, And how do I make sure they are much more balanced? And then particularly if you do have more children of color in your classroom, going out of your way to make sure you're not just even-handed with representation, but I would even say you're trying to counteract the rest of the society's messages Mm -hmm. that center whiteness so you can go even further to provide representation and honoring 
of the children's cultures. I love that you brought up this idea of moving forward in terms of looking at the curriculum from that perspective of, is it centering whiteness or is it culturally responsive curriculum, regardless of what the student population is in that classroom setting? I think typically when we look at the work that's out there that discusses this idea of having a culturally responsive or culturally relevant classroom environment, it's usually because we want to support students of color who happen to be in that classroom setting. But the idea of just doing it because that's how our country looks and we want to prepare the children who are in our classrooms to be open to interacting with folks no matter what their differences may be. And so just making that a central part of the classroom regardless, I love that you brought that up. And I don't think that that is something that is really presented enough. So Mm -hmm. thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So then I also wanted to talk a little bit about that school family connection piece. So it seemed like that was going to be very important related to the work of racial identity. I know that with early childhood, because in most cases, like the parents are bringing their students to the classroom and and there just tends to be more parent-school interaction than there there tends to be as children move more into like the K-12 system. But is there any advice that you can give to either parents or teachers on how they can go about cultivating that relationship with one another and creating, I would say, also that safe space to feel like you can talk about some of the things that your family is doing in terms of racial identity. So for the parent side, creating that safe space where they actually want to share that information. But then also from the teacher side, I think for a lot of teachers, it may be a scary topic in a lot of times. Just the idea of discussing anything related to race or difference, honestly, is something that I know sometimes teachers pull back from, especially now with the racial tensions being more at the forefront. So what advice would you give for them? Um, First of all, I talk about race in my university class at Pitt and it makes me very nervous too. (laughs) So I really feel, (laughs) I feel what you're saying. I know, I know it's not something that many of us are comfortable with or trained with how to do, but I think the more you read and learn and get to know the perspectives, particularly of families of students of color, it feels even more uncomfortable to not talk about it Mm. because that weight, I can't speak for everyone, but what, what I feel is that weight looms even heavier than the fear of speaking about it. And so one thing I think that really helps with that is to reach out to your director or principal or Um, some other supervisor and let them know that this is something that you're trying to grow and learn how to do and begin engaging with parents so that if a concern comes up from a parent or a student, then that person will be ready to be your ally and not caught off guard saying what's happening in that classroom. Uh uh (laughs) And also it gives you a chance. I think if there's something that you would like to try or bring into your classroom that you've learned about that you're not so sure about, you can ask that person's advice beforehand or even ask them to join to visit so that you can have more than one eyes set of eyes on the, 
on the experience because we really can only see these conversations and activities about race from our own perspective. And that's just so debilitating because there's so many ways to see them. And I'm really surprised, I'm not surprised anymore, but I mean, it just continually happens how often I experience something about race and I feel one way. And then I talk to other people who are in the same space and I thought, wow, I had no idea that is how you are experiencing that. Even though I've been in the social emotional field, trying to learn about perspective taking for a long time, but it's a different ball game when you um, are talking about race and when you're with people with different racial identities than you have, you're just not as good at guessing what they might be feeling. Yeah. So the more perspectives you can bring in to help you sort through what you're thinking, what you're thinking about doing, and to be a part of it, the better. And I love how at the very end of that, you talked about this idea of um, bringing in those perspectives, but then also the fact that this work of becoming more of like a culturally competent teacher and having more of a social justice lens is hard work, but then also the fact that it's not something you can do on your own. It requires you to really connect with others, talk through some of either your biases or or your perspectives on things with others, because we as individuals are sometimes not able to necessarily see within ourselves some of our biases or um, that some of the perspectives that we may have are not necessarily universal perspectives that others may or may not carry as well. So I appreciate you bringing that up. And I know that you've been doing a lot of work in this area, both for yourself, but then, you know, also doing work that is going out into the field to help others. So for someone who, and I guess this also speaks to the question that I asked earlier, but for someone who wants to do more of the work of, becoming more culturally competent. What are some suggestions that you would have for them? I would say the work begins and the work continues with a deep practice of listening with humility and simultaneously being willing to engage with your full emotional, personal self. Mm. So it is this balance of being quiet enough to let other perspectives in and take the center stage for a while, particularly if you're white, because often the white perspective takes center stage, but not so quiet that you're a passive listener. So somehow you have to hone the skill of watching yourself to see, am I making space for other voices or am I keeping myself comfortably in the back of the room? Mm. So to jump in and lean in with your full emotions. And as a professor, I have to say, I struggle to remind myself not to just lean in with intellect because I always want to read another scholarly article (laughs) or, or have another research finding when, when really I think so much of it, probably more than 50%, I would say is finding new emotional experiences of your own that you can be very vulnerable and share with others and be honest about how you're experiencing these conversations and then also welcoming in their emotions and their full experiences, even if those feel like they are 
telling you what you're saying is not right. Yeah. So being open to taking that feedback. So learn, listen, have humility, but also be willing to bring your heart and lean in. Yeah. I'm hearing a lot of vulnerability there. So being willing to be vulnerable in this situation. That reminds me of a conversation that I had with David Adams when we were talking about the election. I think this may have been like before the election happened. And we were talking about all of the debates and all of the tension around the elections. And one of the things that he mentioned was this idea that we look at things from more of a knowledge perspective, when in reality, it's very emotion focused and we don't spend enough time on those emotions and really including them in those conversations and in those moments. And I think that also relates to what you're saying here, this idea of the emotions need to be an important part of that. And that's definitely something that we need to remember and bring into these spaces instead of hiding from them or saying, no, I don't want to become emotionally charged or this isn't about emotions. Take the emotions out of it. It is actually a key piece that I think we haven't been focusing on enough as we're having these conversations around social justice and equity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Someone I really admire said what I'm listening to what you just said about something is not emotionally charged or Sometimes people say, I want to communicate professionally about this and stay calm. Mm -hmm. But she said to me, what I'm saying to you is with all of the emotions that I feel with it, because that's part of what I'm communicating to you. It's not just the words I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you all of the things I'm feeling at the same time, because I need you to feel them too. Yeah. And it just made me realize how this sort of dry academic scholarly communication ha can serve a purpose, but in something as deep and important as racism, we need the emotions piece too. Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit now and ask you about just generally your self-care journey. So in doing all of this work, I'm sure that it is emotionally taxing. It may be physically taxing as well when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, but also definitely when we're in the middle of a pandemic. But what is your self-care journey? Like, where are you in your self-care journey? And what do you feel like you've learned along the way? Well, when you say self-care with social justice, I think of one of my mentors, Felicia Savage Friedman. She runs an organization called Yoga Roots on Location, and mm -hmm. she's been a social justice mentor to me. And every time she begins to teach and talk about social justice, she brings up self-care. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I always sort of rolled my eyes at first and thought, yeah, 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 get past that part to the real work. <laughs> I'm ready to do the real work. Okay, okay. And I really was listening to her, but I was not taking it that seriously for a long time. And then this work is, if you really allow yourself to feel it, is so hard. Mm -hmm. And especially when, you know, I think as a white person, when you feel like you are feeling as much as you can feel and you are trying so hard to learn and grow and change the world, and then you have people challenge you and say, actually, what you're doing is harmful. I mean, that's really painful too. So there's the pain of the actual 
injustices and seeing them clearly and being entrenched in them, but also the pain of trying to face who you are, who your history is and how you're showing up every day. Mm -hmm. And so I really got to a point where I was trying to tough out all of that stress. And at a certain point I thought I am going to drop dead. (laughs) Like I really, this is just too much. But then at the same time, I thought I can't stop doing this work but I can't handle this level of stress either. So what am I going to do? And it particularly hit me when I thought if I'm claiming to try to lead others or inspire others in this work, I don't look particularly inspirational when I'm about to drop. (laughs) So I don't know how I'm going to convince anybody else to do this if I can barely keep it up. And so I think that was definitely a aha moment of, I need to take this a little bit more seriously. And sleep and exercise, I mean, not even intense exercise, even just walking every day have been a big source of that. But I've also come to appreciate that some of my dearest social justice colleagues have this ability to find joy that I have never seen in other people. They laugh louder than other people laugh. Uh They connect, they express love on a deeper level. I thought that was just the kind of person that I was being drawn to, but then I realized I think this is what sustains them in this work. And it's something I need to make sure to attend to also for myself so that I can sustain. Yeah. And as I hear you talking, I'm thinking about Angela Davis and Mm -hmm. the whole idea of radical self-care and the need to make sure that you are engaging in that self-care so that you can be around for the work. You're right. It's, as you said, very difficult work, draining on multiple fronts. And so I'm glad to hear that you are now, you know, at a place where you're being more um, conscious and and taking the time, I should say, to engage in more of that self-care so that you can continue on with all of the amazing things that you're doing. So thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to also talk a little bit more about social emotional wellness, because I don't feel like I I asked you this question, but what's a message that you'd want to share with others about social and emotional wellness with all the work that you've done, with all the things that you've done in this area, if you could like sum it up and say, this is like one of the main things that I've learned that I want to share out with the world, what would that be? Like I said earlier about social-emotional learning being this combination of looking at and understanding yourself, but then also your connection to others. I think of wellness like that as well. And I think for the most part in our culture right now, when we think about wellness or self-care, we think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, and often, unless it's a girl's night out or something, I think often that means pulling away from other people and taking time for a long bath or to exercise or to get away in some ways. And, you know, that is, that is important, but I, I think it would be really interesting to start to put just as much of our attention on community care. So what if self-care was always paired with community care? And we thought of how is our community doing right now? How are we all doing? And what does it look like to be asking that often, taking the temperature of the community and taking the response very seriously 
and contributing what we could on a regular basis to helping the wellness of the entire community. And I don't even think we've figured out exactly what that means. I mean, I think there's certainly food banks need donations right now, but it also just means when you enter into a Zoom classroom space with everyone who's there, do you have a sense of how everyone's doing and how that means it might shape the way you interact for the rest of your time together? You know, I think sometimes we check in on a very superficial basis, but mm-hmm. you know, how are you really doing? And how does that dictate the way that we might be together right now or what we might choose to focus on? Yeah. So everything about that, I love, especially, you know, the focus that moves that self-care beyond yourself and looking at others. And as you were saying this, it brought to me a question that I just want to um, check in about. I know that you mentioned earlier with your dissertation work, doing a lot of work around collectivistic countries and social emotional learning in those spaces. And as you were talking about this idea of self-care, also including looking at the larger community and, and community care, it brought up that idea of collectivism to me. And I'm just curious, like for you, do you think that that influenced the idea of self-care moving beyond self to community, like your your experiences with that work? Absolutely. Absolutely. I lived um, during graduate school, I lived for a year in Taiwan and I had a brand new baby, my daughter at the time, which just you know, was a whole nother layer of experiencing a culture. People just invite you in and pull you in when you're holding a baby and you're <laughs> you're a foreigner and you're lost and <laughs> you look like you need help. So I think that led to a lot of relationships. But living there and feeling what collectivism feels like was transformational to me. At first, I could not get over how much everyone was aware of everything about me. It was a little creepy at first of like I'd arrive for class at the university there I was teaching and my hair would still be wet from a shower and everybody's commenting on that and wondering why am I, was I showering later? Did I not get up in time? What happened? You know, like, Why is this a topic of conversation? Or, you know, I'd have a cup of tea with everyone and we're sitting and having a discussion and they would fill my, refill my tea before I'd even notice it had gone down because everyone was so aware of everyone else. Like, how is everyone in this space doing right now? And what can we do to help whoever in this room might be least comfortable or able or engaged? And being there for a year, I mean, I really started to internalize that and could feel myself changing my volume, changing my pace, changing my, you know, what direction I was going, even when we were walking together in a neighborhood because I was matching the group. It's a totally different way of being. And I actually remember at AERA one year hearing a professor from China come and speak about why don't we have any of these collective versions of the Castle Five mm. social emotional skills? And I thought, yes, <laughs> why aren't we talking about that more? So it has absolutely affected the way I can see things because once you feel something like that, once you're a part of it, you can see there is a different way of being. So that is 
so very cool, first of all, that you got to uh, have that experience and that it had such a profound effect on you. And right now, just to finish up some grading for my students where I, I had them look at a description of another culture other than their own and compare it to the cultural background that they most identified with. And for a lot of the students in my class, they did look into um, Asian cultures. So some looked at like South Asian cultures, others looked at other Asian cultures. But one of the big things that they discussed was the idea of collectivism versus in our country, having more of that individualistic view. And especially with just all of the things that are happening now with the pandemic, with, you know, the elections that were going on and, and feeling like our country is in some ways at odds. It seemed like there was a lot that we can learn from a collectivist society that we could potentially like infuse into our own, which brings me to that idea of culturally responsive pedagogy, social justice, equity, and the way that in a sense we frame it as things that we are doing to support whichever population is othered instead of how it can support all of us in some ways as a culture. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if I'm making sense with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes sense. And, you know, I feel like I am constantly trying to check myself um, when I talk about this in class with my university students, because you want to keep the center of focus on the folks that have been marginalized or oppressed and what their experience has been so that we really attend to that in a way that we historically have not at all and try and write that balance. But at the same time, we're all part of this human community together and it's not good for any of us mm -hmm. to live in a state of power imbalances and inequities and to have such extreme haves and have nots. And so, you know, I certainly don't wanna say the haves, you know, need some intervention <laughs> right now, but but I just think we're all people, we're all humans. And so that sense of how do we get rid of supremacy in any form, it happens to be white supremacy right now, but it sh there shouldn't be anyone that any group that is elevated mm -hmm. above, or how do we get rid of, you know, any sense that I am valued more or less. It just, it's so harmful. And I have to give a shout out to this book that I'm just loving right now. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass mm -hmm. by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she is an indigenous woman and she writes as a naturalist in terms of her own background, um, Native American, but then she also writes as a faculty at a university that has a knowledge of naturalist skills from a more Western cultural point of view. And so she braids those two together and it's all about the interconnectedness mm -hmm. in the world. I mean, she extends it beyond people to nature and everything that's here in this ecosystem together. But truly, no matter what perspective you take, whether it's her cultural perspective or the more biological, typical university perspective, when you put them together, they're both getting to the point that ecosystems and societies function best when we see our interconnectedness and care for each other. Yeah. And so, you know, I hope at some point that is where we get with our social justice work is to a point where we are truly all lifting each other up and caring for each other in an equitable, 
and just way. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And also learning from one another, because I'm even thinking about all the different cultures and experiences that we all bring to the table. And if we were to take that collective knowledge, how much better we could make this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm ready for it, Tia. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just have one final question for you, Shannon. And it is that I've been receiving emails about a book drive. And is that still going on? That is still going on. You're so nice to ask about it. So if anyone goes to the Office of Child Development website at the University of Pittsburgh, we have a book drive going on. This is our third year. And all of our books, in the past, they've been focused on social justice. This year, we narrowed in just on anti-racist books for children. And we put a lot of time into being really thoughtful about the books that we're choosing. Folks can go to a link to a local Pittsburgh bookstore or to Amazon and see the books that are on there, select which ones they want to donate, and we'll make sure to get them into the hands of local early childhood providers in Pittsburgh. And over the last two years, we've had almost 3,500 books donated. So we are excited about this, and we're particularly excited about once people have these books, all the conversations that begin from there. So the professional development opportunities that come out of this when we can say, okay, now you see these books and you're interested, how on earth are we going to use them as effectively as possible? And we've really gotten a very warm response from local educators and are excited to see how it develops this year too. Okay, great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I definitely wanted to make sure that that was something that we included for, I'm not sure yet when this episode's going to um, come out, but how long will this drive be going on? Um, we are advertising and pushing it out on social media in November and December, but the links are still up afterwards and the books appear in our office anytime and we make sure they get out. So no one should feel like they miss the miss the date. Oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect. That's what I was hoping. That is what I was hoping. So I'm glad that you know we're able to share that out. And please go online, look at the books. Please consider donating. And then also, I think it's also just a great resource for those that may not be in Pittsburgh, but may be interested in accessing some of those books for either their own classroom or for their children to go on and see the list that you all have cultivated. So I'm going to suggest that they jump on that. And so my final question to you, Shannon, is just to uh, check in about where people can contact you if they want to learn more about the different things that you're doing, the different work that you're involved in. How can they reach out? Well, I would welcome anyone to come to our office's website. It's ocd.pitt.edu. So that stands for Office of Child Development at universityofpittsburgh.edu. Uh, We have 50 people, six different divisions, lots of things happening and changing all of the time. So it's a great website to come to to see what's going on there. And then certainly there are ways to reach out to me through that website as well. Perfect. Thank you so much, Shannon. And I'm sure that this is going to be an episode that leaves folks thinking and contemplating and hopefully um, making some moves towards their journey in social justice. And I also hope that this is just very helpful to early childhood educators. We didn't forget about you. I know we haven't had many folks on here in that area, but I'm so glad that you were able to come on and talk a little bit more about it. So thank you so much. 
Thank you, Tia. It was a pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please visit drtiabarnes.com for show notes. And while you're there, feel free to leave a note. I'd love to connect. If you like the show, subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about it. Don't forget to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. Thank you to ColetteMcKenzie.com for providing podcast management services for this show. See you all next week. And as always, take care. Take care.